Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. I'm sitting in a backyard home music studio in L.A.'s Eagle Rock neighborhood with 19-year-old Jacob Rock. His parents realized he was autistic when he was a toddler, and he's been unable to speak for most of his life. Three years ago, he had a major breakthrough when he was finally able to channel his voice letter by letter on an iPad. It was damn, damn satisfying that I could claim my terrific identity and show everyone my intelligence. It takes a long time for Jacob to type out what he wants to say in real time. So I sent him questions in advance, and he had full sentences ready on his iPad during our interview. You're also going to hear some of his vocalizations. I am celebrating my learning to communicate through typing. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, stories of Californians finding joy through music, dance, and pinball. Starting with Jacob Rock's remarkable journey to unleash his creativity. One of the first things he told his parents when he learned to type is, my name is Jacob, not Jake. Here's his dad, Paul Rock. Yeah, he just wanted to say, look, I'm here, you know, and... And you've been underestimating me the whole time. And, but I've been watching and listening and, as he say, locking everything away in his camera-like mind. That's, <laughs> those are his words. Paul says over the years, some teachers told him and his wife that Jacob probably had a very low IQ because he couldn't speak. He would often flail his arms and hit himself. And he didn't have the motor skills to point to the right answers in school. But one of his neurologists did believe that he was intelligent and could learn to type. It was a journey that took seven long years. During lockdown in 2020, he finally started to peck out letters on an iPad with one finger. By this point, he was 16. And he started really, really expressing himself uh, and typing in full sentences. Everything was spelled correctly, and it was quite amazing, you know. And so then he started doing poetry. Then, not too much later, Jacob told his parents he had a 70-minute symphony in his head called Unforgettable Sunrise. And Unforgettable Sunrise is his, his personal sunrise from when he learned to type. I am calm and focused because the music is always beautiful and soothing.
Jacob's parents weren't that surprised that music became a way to channel his emotions. As a baby, Jacob always calmed down in the car when they played music really loud. And even before he learned to type, he would bang on instruments. When he was about 11 or 10, I had wind chimes out on the front porch, and he would go out in the middle of the night and play the wind chimes. So I would wake up and uh, our front door would be wide open (laughs) at three in the morning or whatever. And uh, then we got him some real chimes for his bedroom so he doesn't go out in in the porch anymore in the middle of the night. And Jacob grew up around musicians. Paul is a big music head. He's got a gigantic record collection and spent years organizing concerts for charity, including autism research, working with local musicians. So he knew who to call when Jacob said he wanted help translating the music in his head to the page. I'm Rob Laufer, and I'm a musician. I do kind of everything. I produce, I write, I sing, I um, cajole, I... Goad, I, um, Rob's being modest here. He's worked with the L.A. Philharmonic, Johnny Cash, Sean Colvin, Fiona Apple. Rob says he read Jacob's poetry on Facebook and was blown away. Then I read that he had written in his mind a symphony, a six-movement symphony, that he needed help getting it out into the world. I thought, please, God, don't call me. <laughs> and then, of course, I got the call. And... Um, I thought about it, you know, it was like such a challenge because obviously, you know, I was fascinated and intrigued, but it seemed like this is going to be a wild, long ride and I do not know what it's going to be. It was a complete mystery. Jacob can't sing, can't read music. So how is this collaboration going to work? Jacob's iPad can only express his voice in words. So Jacob's uh, first directions um, were... It starts with piano bangs. And I'm like, well, piano bangs could be, what, the, what are piano bangs? You mean, Jacob, you mean like that? Or you mean like that? And then I thought, oh, there was this chord that I used to think about when I was a kid that was like kind of this end of the world, amazing chord. I said, how's this? And he was like, that's it. That's exactly what I'm hearing. So that's how the piece opens up. He wants five piano bangs. Like, you're just thrown into his his turmoil, you know. He had written an outline, a very extensive outline, of what he heard in his head. He can't express actual melodies and notes. Um, but he can describe what he hears pretty well in terms of mood, what instruments, what the different instruments are representing for him emotionally. So he wants in the next bit five bursts of cacophony. For each movement, Jacob spelled out exactly what instrument should come up and for how long. Flutes open with two minutes of scary laughing. How do you make that and how do you make it beautiful and scary and interesting? And But uh, it's a great challenge. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
It just was grounded in his vision, which was really strong. I mean, here's a guy who just was able to communicate his entire life of feelings. At the 32nd mark, they are joined by Congress and Trump. So I was getting this fresh fire to handle. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I trusted it completely for what it was. And I think ultimately he, he came to trust me as well. Everything that he would say, every every direction, it just made sense because it was coherent to his soul, his story, the story he wanted to tell. And I could just trust it. And so anytime there was any confusion about anything or if I had a difference, I would always defer to him. He, it, was just, it just felt like his instinct, his sense of things was unerring. I was unbelievably damn floored by Rob's ability to tap into my emotions. I can only say that he is my great collaborator and he reads my musical mind. He always can feel what I want and turn it into amazing notes. <laughs> Take these instructions from Jacob. The violins are demanding sleep and the horns are demanding pain. They battle for three minutes of call and response until the horns realize that they are defeated. Every manic horn met by soaring violin. There's a lot of joy in Jacob's symphony. He says being autistic gave him the power of music. But Unforgettable Sunrise also chronicles the severe physical pain, mostly in his stomach, he's felt for years and couldn't describe out loud. And that's been the fuel for a lot of his pain and, and anger. But he was unable to express it in any way until he started typing. So we had years of self-injury where he would be punching himself in the face, pinching himself, kicking himself. A lot of that went on at school. And at home in the middle of the night, no, no parent wants to see their child do that. It's, it's really the worst. Jacob would make clear at different junctures that when the symphony was at its most joyful or celebratory, he would always interject that it has to, we ha, we, it can't just be all that. He'd have to interject that there was pain and struggle and suffering. so many years of painful silence. Paul says some parts of the symphony are melancholy odes to things Jacob missed out on. Or things he can't participate in because of his silence. He's mourning the years gone by rather than just purely saying, oh, I can type now, I'm, everything's great. He's also like has that kind of complex, bittersweet feel to it.
Has he been able to say anything to you as a dad um, now that he can type that, you know, I don't know, that you've been waiting to hear? Oh, he, he makes me cry all the time, so. <laughs> what did he say? Oh, You're like, what does he say? Oh, he'll say, oh, well, he has one poem where he's, you know, thanks me for rescuing him for his, from his silence, you know, so stuff like that. You know. Oh, no, I love you because you rescued me. Unforgettable Sunrise premieres September 30th in Los Angeles with the orchestra from USC's Thornton School of Music. Jacob Brock says he's already working on his next project, a Mozart-influenced opera. You want to tell me something? Just tell me what you what you want. Okay? That's why we got this. I, I, Okay. Got it. <laughs> well, that's the beauty that we have now. We know clearly what he wants. And now we're heading to a dance party. We're at Lake Merritt near downtown Oakland, and it's a Friday evening. There's this crowd of people at the lake's pergola. Yep, that's how you pronounce it, pergola. And they're dancing to soulful house music and Afro beats and hip hop. This is the Days Like This Community Dance Party. It all started back in the early months of the pandemic when two friends would meet up for casual, socially distanced hangouts by the lake. Since then, it has grown into a party with hundreds of people. Its mission is to build community and to cultivate joy. KQED's culture reporter, Ariana Prail, went to go check it out. So we're gonna work on both of those. So I'm gonna go bend, front. When I arrive at days like this, it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. And Morgan Simon is in the middle of leading a house dance class for a handful of people who've opted to learn some new moves before the party gets going. And it's almost like my chest is hitting a wall. Nice. The class is one of many elements that make up the party's vibe and community. I think the experience that people have at days like this is welcoming and joyful. That's Morgan. She and longtime friend Suleiman Hyatt co-founded Days Like This in 2020. Folks would walk by sometimes, they'd see us dancing, and people would be like, can, can we join? And then people were asking, like, are you going to be here next week? It got serious when people were like, yo, how can we contribute? How can we keep this going? Morgan and Suleiman put their heads together and started thinking about what it would mean to put on a weekly party more formally. 
both of us come from backgrounds in political organizing and then also in dancing. And for us, it was the opportunity to really bring that together with an intentional effort to build this community, particularly coming out of COVID in a time when people couldn't have access to nightclubs and other experiences. Three years later, the party draws up to 300 people each week of all ages, abilities, and walks of life. With the support of dancer donations and volunteers, Morgan and Suleiman have built a special infrastructure for all the fun. There's a group trained in de-escalation practices to help with security, and a therapist and a medical doctor who frequent the party are on standby. And we realized that if you made a party during the day, if you eliminated the alcohol, if you made it family friendly, if you created spaces where people from all over the community could pass by, where unhoused community members could participate, that you would just be able to create a much more inclusive space for people to get that joy that comes from music and dance. That's really what we're after, is that joy, is those moments where we get to be human with each other and we get to see each other. You know, it's almost like a church moment. Throughout the evening, as party regulars congregate on the concrete dance floor, people passing by join the fun. A Latinx man in a cowboy hat and boots does the worm, then goes on about his business. Four black middle school girls dance and laugh for about half a song before rejoining their guardian, who awaits them, smiling. Layla Mollahan, who moved to the Bay Area from Louisiana, stumbled upon days like this one evening last year. She's been coming back ever since. It felt like home immediately. You know, you're surrounded by the elements, you're surrounded by this beautiful call and response in the dancing. A lot of the dancers will start a movement and then everyone in the whole party will echo that movement. And it's just um, an amazing inclusivity right off the bat. Morgan and Suleiman specifically made the party to center dancing, and a dance cipher inevitably forms, with people taking turns showing off their moves in the center of the circle to cheers from the crowd. At one point in the evening, Morgan and Suleiman get on the mic to do a brief demonstration on consent. Hey Morgan, can I dance with you? modeling through skits how to ask someone to dance, how to respond respectfully if the answer's no thanks, and ways community members might intervene if someone feels unsafe in an interaction. Our party is not just people come together, throw your hands up in the air, and that's it. It is deeply intentional. A portion of the party's donations go to a longevity fund. The fund is designated for needs that may come up in the community, like when a dancer's car got stolen and they needed help with transportation. Janelle Fortaleza, who started coming to days like this earlier this summer, loves how she feels in the space. I feel like I genuinely 100% can be comfortable being myself without having to be intoxicated, without having to worry about the male gaze. And this place is just like really genuinely people who love to dance. Juana Brightman, a Days Like This regular who helps out doing things like sweeping and cleaning up the area before the party gets going, enjoys the energy. I find a lot of healing, a lot of peace, a lot of love here. And for two dancers in particular, they found a lasting love connection here. Sophie Lynn and Alvaro Contreras met on the dance floor of Days Like This and later fell in love. When they decided to marry, they chose to have the ceremony at the party. 
Dancers created an aisle that resembled a soul train line. Morgan officiated. May you always be in movement. May you always be able to have that growth and support for each other. May we all support them in that mission. When 9.30 rolls around, Morgan and Suleiman begin what's become the party's closing ceremony. Give it up for you all. Thank you all for coming today. They make final announcements. Any dancers celebrating birthdays are treated to a birthday song, the Stevie Wonder version. Then the DJ cues up the song Before I Let Go by Mays featuring Frankie Beverly. And the crowd does the electric slide in unison. When it's all over and the crowd disperses, smiling, some sweaty from all the dancing, you can't help but look forward to more days like this. Thank you, thank you, I really love you so. That's KQED's culture reporter Ariana Prail at the Days Like This dance party in Oakland. And just a note, since Ariana first reported that story, they've gotten a cease and desist letter from the city because they don't have a permit for their gathering. But they plan to do everything they can to keep the dance party going. And now we're going to head to another stop in our series, Hidden Gems, where we take you to -to out-of-the-way spots across the Golden State. Today, we're heading to a place where you can relive the glory days of gaming before virtual reality or iPads. Flashing lights, ringing bells, nothing says vintage arcade like the pinball machine. I've been a pinball fan since I was a kid, so it's really cool to get my fix. We don't have pinball in Mexico, so for me it's really, really new. It's the old style of the pinball machines because I've never experienced it in my times. Our intern Olivia Zhao takes us to the Pacific Pinball Museum on the Bay Area island of Alameda, where visitors can relive the nostalgia of pinball and get their hands on those flippers. Walking into the Pacific Pinball Museum is like stepping into a time capsule. Hand-painted murals decorate the walls, vintage jukeboxes blast music, and everywhere I look, there are pinball machines, some of them dating back to the 1940s. If you've never played pinball before, here's how it works. You insert a coin, you pull back the plunger to launch the ball, and then you try to score points by hitting specific targets as the ball rolls down a slanting surface. Your job is to like keep it from going out the hole in the middle. <laughs> it's a total equalizer because it doesn't require brains or brawn. or It just requires a knowledge of gravity. Michael Shees is the founder and executive director of this museum. When he bought his first pinball machine in 2002, his plan was to take it apart and use them to make art which would have been horrible. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't do it. Once he started playing, however, Michael didn't have the heart to destroy the machine. Instead, he started buying more and preserving them. So I ended up uh, just renting a room and putting machines out for people to play because there wasn't any place to really play pinball at that point. But there was one problem. When I first opened up the room there, that was 2002, and it was illegal to have an arcade in Alameda. So it basically became kind of a little speakeasy and people just would come in through the back door. If that sounds a little 
extra, consider this history. Before pinball became a staple arcade game, it was deemed a game of chance, like a slot machine, and was therefore gambling. That's because early pinball machines didn't have flippers to help players control the ball, but the players still tried. They'd bump and tilt the machine. Gotham's colorful Mayor LaGuardia led police in smashing and jettisoning 1,200 slot machines. In the early 1940s, New York City banned pinball, and the mayor even took a sledgehammer to a pinball machine as part of his campaign against organized crime and their gambling businesses. The gamblers, Shenhorn, racketeers, and gangsters take notice that they have to keep away from New York from now on. Other big and small cities banned pinball too, including Los Angeles, which banned pinball until 1974. In Alameda, the law was still on the books when Michael started this place in 2002. So he opened it as a non-profit museum instead. It wasn't ever supposed to be a, an amusement arcade. It was supposed to be a, a place where you'd learn about art and about uh, technology and about history. There are over 100 pinball machines on display, ranging from the 1940s to present day. Better yet, this is an interactive museum. So if anything catches your eye, you can stop and play. The museum as it stands now is 6,000 square feet, and it's got about nine different rooms. The tour of the museum starts from the very beginning of pinball history. Pinball actually came to our country in uh, 1778, when the French came over to our country. This was the Revolutionary War, when the French helped Americans fight the British. They're the ones that actually came up with the game. It was called Bagatelle back then. Bagatelle consists of a small open wooden box with holes and pins attached to the bottom and a pull knob at one end. Bagatelle quickly got popular in the U.S. There's even a political cartoon from 1864 depicting the presidential race between Abraham Lincoln and George B. McClellan as a little game of Bagatelle. Yeah, this one's Humpty Dumpty. This is the first game to have flippers. Before flippers came along, bumping or tilting the machine was the only way to help the ball reach a higher score. In the 1940s, flippers changed everything. It was the first time the player could actually affect the ball on the way down. From there, pinball game designers came up with all kinds of interesting gimmicks, like the first talking pinball machine, Gorga. But by far the most popular games in this museum are the modern ones. Modern pinball machines have a steeper slant, brighter lighting, and louder sound. And the art is often based on movie and TV hits. Indiana Jones, World Cup Soccer, the most popular pinball of all time, modern, is the Addams Family, yeah. I was struck by the timelessness of this place. Kids laughing in 2023 sounds a lot like their parents would have decades ago when they were children themselves. I mean, it's just fun, and it's great to see all these old machines and the way that they've evolved over time um, and see them in really good shape and really well cared for. Simon Pyle recently discovered the museum. There's nothing like the thrill of that high score. And then also to bring my kids here so they can see the stuff that I don't know, my dad always brought me to play pinball, so it's cool to pass that along too. I grew up at a time when culture was passed along through objects. Books, CDs, postcards. 
we could touch them and feel them and hold them in our hands. That's what makes them special. I miss that, and it will keep me coming back to the Pacific Pinball Museum again and again. That was our intern and resident pinball fan, Olivia Zhao. If you've got an idea for a California hidden gem, drop us a line at calreportmag at kqed.org. That's calreportmag at kqed.org. And that's it for our show this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our interim senior editors, Katrina Schwartz, our producer director is Susie Racho, with big help this week from Jessica Carissa and Izzy Bloom. And Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. I'm Sasha Koka. You can catch all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.